I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, fine, lovely listeners. Welcome back to the show. I am going to make today's intro very short and sweet because I have not gotten a ton of sleep in the past couple of days, and uh, we have an eight-hour drive today, and yeah, when I don't get enough sleep, I feel like words are so difficult <laughs> to put together. Um, I had to get on the phone with AT&T yesterday for like three hours and of course, everyone was super incompetent and very unhelpful. So I had to explain the problem like six times. And I realized by the end of it, it was like my brain and my mouth are just not communicating. So I don't want to subject you all to uh, very non-eloquent. Is that even a word, Anya? <laughs> Non-eloquence? Is that a word? Maybe. We're just going to keep going. Um we are in Missoula, Montana now. It is the last day, or last morning rather, in Montana. We are headed into Stanley, Idaho, which is one of my favorite places in the Sawtooth Range. Probably be there for the next week or so-ish. Um, and then we are going to begin the journey south, meaning the van trip has... Uh, we reached our most northern point a few days ago, and um, we are circling back down, which is going to be crazy. We're going to stop in L.A., which is going to be crazy, but we need to go there because our storage unit's there, and uh, we need to see some people, um, and then probably headed back to Colorado for October and November, maybe longer, depending on what the hell happens in the country. <laughs> very, very unknown at this point. Um, anyway, so all that to say, I'm tired. We have a long drive ahead of us. I'm just going to bring you this episode right away, and I hope you enjoy it. The one thing I do want to say, though, is just how appreciative I am of... Um, I feel like I said this last time, but I'm just going to repeat myself. Appreciative of you guys. Uh, this conversation is with Jesse Baring. He wrote an amazing book called Perv, among many other books that I unfortunately haven't read, but I need to. Uh, and this conversation is um, full of taboos and full of things that I feel like most people don't talk about in general and specifically not on fucking podcasts. Um, but here I am having this conversation with him, and I'm pretty positive that you all will enjoy it and think it's normal, and, um, or if not normal, acceptably, quote-unquote, abnormal. Um, and it's just really cool to have this community of people that 
are super thrilled to have the same conversations that I want to have, to engage in the same type of um, topics that I want to discuss. I was, I have a, a podcast uh, coming up with a friend of mine, and we're going to talk about Black Lives Matter. Uh, this is a black fr- friend of mine, just a mention. Um, and it's going to probably be a super crazy, intense, nuanced conversation. And um, I'm super psyched to have that. It's probably not going to come out for a little while. But we were having a sort of pre-recording conversation. And, um, you know, she is uh, among all of us are always afraid to express unpopular opinions, unconventional opinions, opinions that we think we're going to be, you know, harassed or canceled for, because obviously that happens all the fucking time. And, you know, I think when I started this podcast, I really hoped that I would have an audience or attract an audience that would be super down to have these nuanced conversations and would understand the sort of like paradoxical nature of everything in the world and recognize that, you know, when I talk about the Me Too movement and accepting responsibility and empowerment on behalf of women, that I'm not victim blaming or being a rape apologist, right? Like we can hold these multiple truths at once. I hoped that I would attract that audience, but I wasn't totally sure. And the more I released content on the show, the more honest and vulnerable I was about my opinions. It still to this day is amazing how many supportive emails I get. Like, I don't get harassing emails from people. Like, how dare you say this, blah, blah, blah. I think you guys know me really well and you're here because you know me and you want to be here and you want to have these conversations and you're totally down with them. And my guess is that there are a lot of us out there. It's just that our opinions don't get any of the airtime. So we think we're alone, but I would assume maybe there are more of us out there than there are those who subscribe to like black and white PC culture, boring bullshit. Um, so it's cool. It's cool to be able to bring people on the show, like my friend Jasmine, who you'll hear from probably in about a month or so about, uh, you know, controversial topics and within controversial topics, you know, unconventional opinions. It's really nice to be able to say to people on the show, like, you don't need to worry about offending anyone. My audience is amazing and they're super open-minded and they probably want to be a little offended and they want to be a little triggered. At least I know that's how I am and I'm assuming you all are the same. Or not assuming, I know you guys are the same. I've gotten a lot of emails from people that are like, when you started talking about XYZ, at first I was kind of triggered or like, worried or thinking I didn't agree or felt offensive. And then the more I listened, the more it kind of opened my mind and made me realize that you were right. And I was just reacting from this kind of defensive, unprocessed place. And, um, so that's cool. That's that it's cool to be able to have these conversations, but it's also really cool that you guys exist, um, in order to support me in having these conversations. So I know I said this last time, but thank you again. Um, Before we get into the show with Jesse, if you would like to support the podcast, please head over to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. We are in just a few days having our first book club meeting uh, over Zoom, which I'm stoked about, where we all read Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer uh, this past month. We're going to meet live to discuss it, which is one of the perks that you get when you become a patron. 
Uh, there are also multiple WhatsApp group chats, which have been amazing. The first one is totally full. I'm keeping, I'm limiting them to 30 each so we don't get overwhelmed by annoying messages. Um, and so that you guys can actually get to know each other on maybe a more intimate basis than you would if there was like a WhatsApp group chat with a hundred people. So I think the second one's maybe about half full now, still tons of space. And when that one fills, fills up, I will start another one. So if you would like to communicate with other listeners on a much more intimate basis, um, obviously talk to me as well in there. I participate, but mostly it's about talking to one another and sharing articles and asking questions and asking for support. We've these people in these groups have gotten very close and meet each other in real life. And it's so fucking amazing. Um, and just like nourishing for me to witness. So those are the two perks that I'm most excited about. I've been thinking about some other things to add as well. Um, just have to sort those through in my mind, but if you'd like access to all of those perks, in addition to t-shirts and playlists and, um, lots of other things, again, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. If you don't have any spare money or spare change to donate to the podcast on a monthly basis, I totally understand. Another great way to support the podcast is just to share it with a friend. Um, as I've said many times, my main goal here is to grow this community as much as I possibly can, support as many people as I possibly can, and... Uh, yeah, so if you hear an episode that you think someone that you know would enjoy or just want to recommend the podcast as a whole, go for it. Uh, that's amazingly, amazingly helpful. The other free, easy thing you can do is go into iTunes if you listen, or Apple Podcasts, I guess it's called, um, if that's how you listen to your podcast. If you're listening on your phone right now, you can do it right now. Just go into the app click on the show, hit subscribe, and then if you scroll down past all of the episodes, you can hit some stars um, and leave a review, which also takes a second. It's super, super easy. All of that helps the podcast show up more in search results and also helps it look more legitimate so that when I reach out to more well-known, famous people uh, and they go and take a look at the podcast on Apple Podcasts, which they always do, they'll be like, oh, people listen to this and like it. Maybe it's worth doing. So... All of those things are helpful. Thank you all just for being here and being amazing and allowing these conversations to happen and allowing them to kind of trickle out into all of these different places. Um, I love hearing about that too. If there's something, conversation on the show, something I talked about, something I mentioned um, that meant something to you in your life or that you shared with someone and it was a cool experience or maybe a bad experience. Um, I like hearing about all of that. So always feel free to send me an email anyacots at gmail.com or a message on Instagram anya.cots or I don't know, send me a letter or something. Um, I am going to play you in today. Uh, with a song called Animal by Jenny and Johnny. I've played a good bit of Rilo Kylie on the show, and Jenny Lewis is the main singer. And she had this, um, I'm going to freaking forget his name now. She's in a relationship with this guy, Johnny, someone or other. And they had this side project called Jenny and, Je uh, Jenny and Johnny. And I think they just released one album. He used to be super into it and just remembered it for the first time in like a decade yesterday. So... I was listening through and heard this song, Animal, and it speaks to so many things um, that relate to my conversation with Jesse as it relates to religion and morality and um, animality. Just really cool. So enjoy the song. Enjoy this conversation. And I will catch you all on the other side. When my 
Cross modernized Jerusalem Detonate the temples Let them fly over the dust We will organize in Bethlehem Able-bodied women And agnostic, headstrong men Awesome. Um, thank you again, Jesse, for being here. I'm really excited. I read uh, I read your book, Perv, right before I started this podcast, actually. So you were at the top of my list of people to talk to. Um, and it's funny because I, I do think our minds probably work in similar ways. When I was in college, I took a class about um, the social construction of family life. And my school was, you know, very... Uh, crunchy granola and we didn't have tests. So we had to write these papers 
uh, every semester sort of like on the topic of our choice. It just had to be loosely at least based on the, the course. What school was that? Uh, Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I chose for this particular class to write a paper called Reexamining the Incest Taboo. Mm, always a popular topic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, and I, you know, was confused as to why there wasn't an abundance of research looking at the like socially constructed ideas surrounding incest. Um, but it was really fun. I think I've always been really into looking at things that are taboo and that most people don't want to touch because I feel like sometimes literally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, so I'm curious, like, I guess what, and you seem to write about taboo a lot. You wrote about sexual perversion, about suicide, about penises and lots of different. And don't forget the existence of God too. The existence of God. Exactly. Yeah, totally. All of these topics are, are definitely of interest to me. So I'm curious, like, if you have any idea growing up or, or, um, just in your past, like what got you interested in these things and what really appealed to you about taboos, um, and maybe the specifically sexual perversion. Yeah. I don't know if there's a, there's an easy succinct answer to that question. I have attempted to do some navel gazing in terms of examining why I'm interested in the topics that I am. Um, I suppose a lot of it has to do with the fact that, uh, I always, I was a very introverted person and I still am actually. And I feel like I have a, I have a, a different voice, um, as a writer than I do in my sort of personal, normal life interacting with other people. But, um, you know, growing up, I think as a, as a shy sort of introverted child who with a dawning awareness that he was gay, um, being Jewish, uh, at least in principle, my mother was Jewish, but living in a, um, small Midwestern town, um, where, yeah, I just sort of felt inherently like an outsider. I, I was observing a lot. I think I, this sounds very creepy, but I was a watcher <laughs> and, um, I get it. <laughs> and I, I always had this sort of very strong, um, interest and curiosity about human behavior. And, uh, so I think that that's a big part of it. Just sort of being feeling like an outsider and, um, looking in from, from the periphery of, um, of what is socially acceptable, but not being open about these things at that time and sort of learning and trying to navigate through these, um, complex social systems in the best way that I could. Um, Probably, you know, these, these types of experiences contributed, I think, to the types of questions that I was interested in. But I've also just been always um, sort of obnoxiously, uh, irritatingly um, curious. And, you know, I was the youngest child and always sort of poking at my older siblings. And I like to see their reactions. So I think a lot of, a lot of the writing that I do is, is um, for better or worse, it's to, it's to provoke a uh, reaction from um, – an audience or at least to sort of evoke emotions. Um, and I just had a, I guess you could say a talent for, for that. I'm not sure that's something to be proud of, but, um, but you know, sort of a, a talent and an inclination to, um, uh, to get people to, to get people uncomfortable, but also to think. 
Yeah, I, I definitely have always felt the same way. I off, I also was very introverted and feel like I like just absorbed so much all the time and then would kind of like freak out and have a fit because it was too much. Um, but yeah, I think it was the same. I, I also had a Jewish mother, grew up in, uh, outside of New York City. My dad is gay. And so I was constantly questioning, you know, people would say this word means that, or, you know, if you're gay, it means this. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know. Gay seems really bad according to the culture, but like my dad's awesome. So what else about the world is untrue or at least, um, pretending to be true? Uh, so could you, I think I certainly even was as the person I was until college, very unfamiliar about what like a social or cultural construction is. And I feel like you break that down in regard to sexual perversion in your book. Um, so what we consider perversions are not necessarily like written somewhere in like a Bible about what is perverted and what isn't. Um, but this is like, or maybe it is the Bible that is the reason that we think things are perverted. But uh, I would love if you could just like talk to the audience about what that means. So when we say something is perverted or someone um, is a sexual pervert, uh, what is the nature of that comment in terms of truth and reality? Um, so I think when people say, use the word pervert, it's such a loaded phrase, it's such a loaded term, um, but it it means wrong, sort of inherently immoral. Um, but if you do a deeper dive sort of into that, that particular construct and examine why people sort of classify or categorize certain types of um, sexual behaviors or sexual orientations as being perverted, um, they have a difficult time unpacking or articulating why they feel that it is um, immoral. You know, they, uh, there's actually this a term, it's called uh, moral dumbfounding, Jonathan Haidt's term, where people have a strong sort of gut reaction, uh, a deep sort of visceral sense that something is wrong. But when you ask them, well, why is it wrong? Like, for instance, he talked about incest. Um, if somebody were to ask, you know, why is it wrong to sleep with your sibling? You can, you can give some sort of um, reasonably uh, coherent answers in terms of, um, you know, harm-based uh, problems associated with, with incest, like, you know, genetic abnormalities and offspring being harmed. But if you, if you think about, you know, the example, one of the examples that I use in PERV is a set of identical gay twins, um, males, and they're both of age, and they consider each other their boyfriends and they're in a you know sexual relationship and they have been for many years they don't think it's wrong they don't think they're being harmed um people have this you know like i said sort of a a, a strong natural gut reaction that it's gross or it's wrong but um when you when you sort of push them into a corner and, and explain well who is it harming or why is it bad why is this perverted they struggle with that um so I'm not saying that uh, it's okay necessarily. I mean, that's I think that's a separate or orthogonal conversation um, than just sort of understanding uh, people's uh, psychological responses to deviant sexual behavior. I mean, deviant sexually deviant means, in a statistical sense, it's just a, it's a deviation from uh, the norm. Um, so it's sort of a uh, an amoral term. 
But because it's embedded within a social system, that's where all these sort of strong emotional reactions come into place. Now, obviously, it depends on the particular type of sexual behavior that we're referring to. But, you know, in my book, Perv, I think uh, one of the core messages is that the onus is on us to identify um, harm. So the conversation about sexuality shouldn't be about what is abnormal because that's kind of, that's meaningless, really. It should be about what is harmful and uh, being able to defend our um, rationale for why we think something is harmful. Yeah. Have you read uh, Michael Warner's uh, book, The Trouble with Normal? No, I can't say I have, actually. No, it's really good. It, he, it was a long time ago, but it, I think I read it probably far too young than I mm. should have, but I was like 12 or 13. And he's a gay man and he was arguing against gay marriage sort of talking about like, why is it the sort of header? Why do, why are we, why do we want to fight for the heteronormative structure of relationships? You know, and not necessarily saying we shouldn't have it, but um, just sort of deconstructing the topic. And I think, I think people do tend to correlate, especially when I tell people I wrote this paper about incest. Um, for me, it was like, okay, for example, the genetic argument, like that's presupposing that all of those relationships are one heterosexual and two they're having kids um yeah yeah what if it's a post-menopausal, postmenopausal woman or uh yeah. right um and then it's like you can take that even farther and say even if they were having kids to control that is that not eugenics in a way that other types of relationships are not controlled in that mm-hmm. way we're not preventing two people from having kids if they have some sort of you know genetic disability for example so what you're trying to tell me is that you are pro incest is it <laughs> <laughs> um and you are pro pedophilia right that's what people would probably say about your book <laughs> um uh, I would like to talk about that a bit too. I think that sort of is one of the central arguments you make in regard to um, sexual perversion is around uh, pedophilia. And also there is a difference obviously between someone who acts upon huh. these things versus someone who thinks about it or fantasizes about huh. it. Um, and I was just like, so when I read that, I was so grateful because it felt like such a risky complex endeavor that most people are afraid to look at in its entirety. Um, it was a deeply uncomfortable topic to write about, but you know, then again, it would have been, um, even worse if I had ignored the topic altogether. I'm writing a book about sexual deviance. You can't, you can't do that. Um, and not, uh, talk about some of the most controversial aspects, um, in, in that domain, including pedophilia, I wrote about zoophilia and bestiality. I mean, these are all things that are just um, not pleasant for me as a writer to to explore either. <laughs> but um, as yeah. a rationalist and as somebody who's trying to understand the science underlying um, sexual minorities, sexual deviations, and um, being very careful with the language that we use, because I think that's very important, because these are distinguishable constructs. There's a difference, for instance, between a pedophile and a child molester. Um, they don't, they're not, um, necessarily the same thing. You can be a pedophile, for instance, and, um, be, uh, completely committed to abstinence and not, um, causing harm to any child. And you are cognizant and aware of the, the problematic nature of your sexual orientation. And you can also be a child molester, um, and sexually abuse a child 
not because you're sexually aroused by them, but just because, you know, for other factors, uh, you know, it, the person is intoxicated or, um, uh, something else, but they're, you know, they, they wouldn't forensically be classified as a, as a pedophile if tests were administered. So I think it is, I think it is important to make that distinction. Um, there are also, uh, of course, differences in, I guess you would say, um, age categories of, um, I, I think the common language now is, um, um, minority attracted person, if I remember cor- correctly, which is, you know, there, there's, there's sort of different, you know, you have a true pedophile, somebody who's sexually aroused primarily by prepubescent children. A hebophile is somebody who's attracted to, um, those who are sort of on, on the cusp of puberty. So the sort of Lolita type, um, uh, classification and then a febophiles are sexually attracted primarily to older aged adolescents um you know um teleophiles somebody attracted to uh what we would consider to be uh legal uh sexually mature reproductively aged adults even gerontophiles gerontophiles are attracted to the elderly um that's it. That's their primary sexual response. So these erotic age orientations um, was definitely an interesting subject to examine. Yes. Um, and you you mentioned this briefly, but that these are like, how can we not call these things sexual orientations mm-hmm. like anything else? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, to me, I mean, there is there is a lot of diagnostic um, criteria associated with uh classifying something as a true sexual orientation. But um, to me, there's there's definitely a blurring of boundaries between um, what we've considered to be uh, um, mental disorders and sexual orientations like zoophilia or pedophilia. I mean, really, it's sort of what your brain, your whole physiological system, your reproductive, what does it respond to? What does it orient toward? You know, we might find it aversive and gross and disgusting, but the fact that that's what you psychiatrically, psychiatrically or psychologically orient toward, um, to me, it's, it's relatively straightforward. Um, you know, whether we, whether it's, whether it's politically correct or appropriate to refer to it as a sexual orientation, um, that seems to be, uh, you know, that, that seems to be making it more complicated than it probably needs to. From a, from a scientific perspective anyway. Right. I want, I think too, it's like we're, there are, I think, large swaths of the population that are very incapable of and afraid of nuance and sort of like individualized identity and expression. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I could totally hear in my head saying like, oh, well, you know, if we allow, gay marriage, you know, obviously then it's like people are going to marry animals or, or whatever the next. Yeah. Oh, and, and that also all of these things are to some extent moral issues because if someone's sitting there and fantasizes about children, let's say, and never does anything about it, is that person a criminal? Is that person wrong? If what we see as inappropriate is, you know, a socially constructed phenomenon in the first place. Um, and the same with, I would say animals, right. It's like a moral, you know, they're not, 
they're not consenting. So therefore we shouldn't do that. No. Um, you know, but then, but then, you know, one of the more interesting things that I discovered with, uh, looking closer at zoophilia and bestiality is that, um, I think, I think the majority of people who consider themselves, uh, zoophiles actually are more interested in being the, how do I put this, um, gracefully, uh, the, the receptive <laughs> partner in the relationship, <laughs> yeah. um, which, yeah. Poses some challenges, I think, to the issue of consent. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, yes, I think there's a, there's a fear of, of nuance and, um, looking, looking more closely at these types of questions because what it, you know, what, what those types of examinations, um, presuppose about our, our own sort of personal opinion about those types of things or whether they're acceptable or not. But that's anti-scientific to me. Um, you know, uh, to me, it's all about having an objective, amoral lens by which to understand complex, including taboo and deeply disturbing um, human behavior. Because that's the only way. That's the only way you can address it is to understand it. Um, and if you don't know what you're dealing with or operating with, then you can't possibly intervene in a way that um, is beneficial to society. Right. And of course, the, you know, what we're talking about here is like what to do with, what to do with the fact that this exists and what to do with a person who feels this way. You know, it, it, what is the, is the right thing to have them go to therapy? Is the right thing to have them live in secrecy their entire lives? Is the right thing to lock them up? Um, I think we probably think about these things in very vague, um, yeah ways and don't consider that these are actual people with actual desires and actual history and traumas and all that stuff behind them. Yeah, I don't I don't have the answers to those questions. Um but I don't think that it involves suppression and keeping things hidden from others and um leading a life of of secrecy and and fear and trauma. I think, you know, I think that that contributes more I would, I would argue that probably contributes more to, um, ongoing rates of abuse than, uh, being able to have mature, frank, clinically oriented conversations about these matters. Um, and not, um, allowing ourselves to fall prey to moralistic, um, rhetoric. I'm curious what you feel. And again, it's a nuanced issue, so we can't group them all together, but, <laughs> Uh, a lot of thing, I feel like there's a lot of situations like this recently with men in their, let's say, 30s and 40s being accused of grooming women in their, you know, 16, 17, 18. Um, and the sort of Me Too silencing cancel culture, uh, that's surrounding those issues right now. Um, I'm curious as those stories have come out, if you've, if you've looked into them at all and what your thoughts are about the ways that we seem to be pretty afraid to talk about even something that at least in my mind, isn't that taboo <laughs> or rare, I guess. Um, you know, I've been, I've been, I wrote Perv the book in 2013, so it, it has been a while, but I, you know, I've been reading, um, these developments in the media and me too movement and that, that sort of thing. Um, just like anybody else. Um, 
one of the things that I argued in the book is that we have to look at um, cases individually um, if we're really going to do uh, utilitarian justice um, for for victims, then we have to consider their perspective as well and not necessarily um, take some sort of uh, a blanket um, approach to you know, highly idiosyncratic relationships. I, you know, that's a, that's a convoluted way of answering the question, but, um, I think, I mean, I think, you know, when, when we're talking about, um, uh, fast age differences between, um, two parties like that, uh, you know, there has to be some sort of legal structure in place. I wouldn't argue against that. Um, but, the damage incurred is not necessarily what we would always uh, automatically assume. Um, <clears throat> I forget if you talked about this in PERV at all, but do you feel like when it comes to, let's say, pedophilia or incest or these situations in which there are AIDS gaps but maybe not as severe, that part of what we're dealing with are our discomforts or misunderstandings or just lack of understanding around power dynamics, especially when it comes to sexual relationships. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't talk too much about the power dynamics um, in, in the book. I think it's because I, I orient it more toward um, sort of biological principles of, um, of arousal and developmental pathways to, you know, you know, where do fetishes come from and that, that sort of thing. Um, because I think once you start talking about power, uh, that's a somewhat different conversation to me than, um, a biological response set. It complicates matters and I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but, um, I, I think it's a separate, it's sort of a separate, um, issue, you know, because I think it's easy to say that, you know, it's all about, power. It's not about sex or, you know, something along those lines, but you do have to be, I mean, from, from just simply a straightforward physiological perspective, you do have to be sexually aroused. So there is some biology and arousal response occurring, whether it is motivated or precipitated by some sort of, um, fantasy about power or power dynamics. Um, that's legitimate, uh, hypothesis, but you can't take sex out of it entirely. There is a sexual component. Um, otherwise, it just simply wouldn't occur. Yeah, I, I wonder too, and maybe this gets in a little bit to your book about belief, um, or, or maybe this is a, a stretch, but I, I feel like narcissism is really prominent at the moment. I feel like I've been always interested in this sort of from a personal perspective, but now looking collectively in terms of people we admire, whether those are crazy presidents or gurus or anything like that. Um, whether I haven't read your yeah. book, uh, the belief instinct, I think it's called. Um, but I'm curious if that, that played into it at all, a sort of putting people up on pedestals or projecting something within ourselves that we weren't yet ready to grasp as far as, um, worshiping, uh, a God or a godlike figure. Um, yes. I mean, and there, there are theoretical models about the origins of, of religion stemming from, um, worship of high status, uh, including living deities. But my, you know, at the core of my, 
argument for the evolution of God, basically, uh, is that it all depend, it all depended on, um, the emergence of something that is very distinct, this sort of unique and distinguishable to human psychology, which is, um, called a theory of mind or the ability to basically put yourself into somebody else's shoes or to take their perspective, which is related also to the question of narcissism, because I think narcissists are, um, they struggle with perspective taking and experiencing other people's emotions. But in terms of religion and where that all came from, that, you know, one of the most basic things that you have to have in order to conceptualize a God um, is the ability to take the perspective of another. And that includes the perspective of this mind in the sky that's sort of watching us and evaluating us and thinking about us and has emotions toward us and is doing things to give us messages. And, um, we derive meaning from, you know, these unexpected events because, um, we think that God is trying to, you know, steer us one direction or, or the other, but all of that hinges on something that the comparative psychology literature suggests is um, a human cognitive specialization, which is this advanced form of social cognition, this theory of mind, a theory of the unobservable mental states of others. So, um, you know, having a conversation with you right now, I can't literally see your thoughts. I can't see what emotions are, you know, sort of flitting through your mind. Maybe you're, you're incredibly bored or you disagree with what I'm saying. I see you smiling right now. Um, I see, you know, sort of a sparkle in your eyes. So I can make attributions about what's happening in your mind, but it's all theoretical because I can't see it. Um, so my argument about the evolution of religion basically is that it's, it's a byproduct. The belief in God or dead ancestors or, you know, spirits, anything that has a mind that's interacting with us in some sort of supernatural way is a byproduct of everyday normal human social cognition. Um, we just are ascribing it in places or in, in the natural world where it doesn't belong. Yeah. Yeah. I was recently, recently having a debate with a bunch of people where we were talking about this idea that there is more out there than we know. Um, and, and basically one side was arguing, well, of course there is, um, you can take that in a very literal sense, right? Like you're sitting by a fire and all you can see is the the light that the fire gives off. Clearly there's more out there than you can see or know. And can that be ascribed to something, you know, much larger like God or the meaning of life or belief? Um, and then the other side was arguing that whether or not that was true, the fact is any beliefs that we have have to be, they're all coming from our own nervous system. They're all projections of our own mind, basically, whether or not that's an individual belief or a collective belief. Is that sort of similar to what you're saying? Similar, I think, you know, to some extent, um, everything that we experience subjectively, phenomenologically is, um, the consequence of our own personal psychological existence. I think Sylvia Plath had this great line in one of her poems. She said, I close my eyes and all the world drops dead. Um, and I think, I think there's a deep truth to that really, because, um, we hold the cosmos entirely in, in our own brains. And if you're a materialist and you believe that, um, uh, uh, neuropsychological structures cause every, uh, aspect of psychological experience, qualia, as they call it in, in philosophy, then um, 
then that's it. When you die, that's it. And uh, so we take the world with us, even the things that we haven't contemplated or fathomed or conceptualized because we can't or because we haven't thought about them um, uh, as, as, a, as a consequence of us um, with these, this particular type of brain that we have. Yeah, and I, that has to also relate to you wrote a book about suicide, and I feel like you know, believing that there's a reason for our lives or believing that we're here to do something or that there is, there's yeah. a reason we shouldn't just die, um, is probably very tightly wound up in this, right? Because I think for a lot of people, they find some sort of sense of belief or spirituality in like the darkest place in their life. And that's the only thing mm -hmm. that often gets them through. Well, the sort of existential anxiety and, and, you know, some sort of purpose or meeting in the Victor Frankl sense. Uh, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Um, but what seems to, to ins uh, inspire, maybe it's not the best word, but to precipitate or motivate suicidal thinking in most people is um, our social problems is the fact that people are worried about their, um, individual identity within a, a social group and especially about other minds evaluating them. So shame, the sort of experience of shame and worry and anxiety over other people's thoughts is a very powerful motivator of um, suicidal thinking, even more so than depression. I think, you know, most people think that depression goes hand in hand with suicide, but I mean, the truth is the vast majority of people who are depressed don't, uh, don't end up um, attempting to take their own lives. And there are people who, um, have no history of depression that nevertheless in sort of a flash flood of emotions, they, they end up killing themselves. So, um, it's all, you know, basically everything I write has to do with social cognition and theory of mind, sort of this sort of burning sense or awareness of others eyes on us, whether that's God, whether that's other people in the community who are judging us and evaluating us and thinking about us. Um, um, you know, that's at the heart of, I think, what it means to be human. And, you know, that, that was to me a really, really big discovery to sort of recognize that this is probably the aspect of psychology that sets us, sets us apart from all other species that, that live and have ever lived. Um, I did my earliest research as a graduate student with chimpanzees, looking at chimpanzee cognition and um, comparing their abilities to young children's abilities and things like um, uh, perspective taking and deception and uh, uh, symbolic play. And, you know, there are meaningful differences between what chimpanzees can do, adult chimpanzees can do, and what um, young human children can do. And at the heart of that, really is this theory of mind capability. Um, so even though chimpanzees are our closest living relative and they have incredibly sophisticated social psychological abilities and their behaviors closely match human behaviors, there are also 20 intermediary species of human beings that existed um, since we last shared a common ancestor in about seven to eight million years. And a lot happened over that period of time in terms of the evolution of the human brain. And it seems to be that a, one of the major things that happened uh, is all centered around this ability to take the perspective of others. We are the animal kingdom's natural psychologists. 
uh, as Nicholas Humphrey put it, um, without any any sort of you know explicit teaching or learning about how to to think about what others are thinking, we we do so, um, and we think about what other animals are speak are, are thinking. My dog's sitting right here. I'm you know she's she's twitching in her sleep, so I'm imagining what's happening in her mind to what sort of dreams she's having. Uh, but all this has to do with um, perspective taking, and you know it was both the best thing and the worst thing when it came to being a human, it was, it was a good thing because we were able to empathize and to take and to learn information from others intentionally to sit down with others and share information with them. Um, but it also, uh, caused a lot of, you know, negative emotions like shame and guilt and anxiety and worry and dread, um, that it's the other side of the same coin. Do you feel like there was a point, uh, cause I was going to say, obviously that, theory of mind can be, and even shame to some extent, and self-reflection amidst a group of people or community can be very beneficial and useful. Um, do you feel like something veered off course in a way because we, you know, with the printing press or the public realm or like our groups and our communities and the world became so big and there were so many eyes that before something like shame or responsibility in a group of 50 people may have made sense. Whereas shame, uh, on behalf of the entire world became unbearable. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it would have been unbearable even in small scale hunter gatherer societies of, you know, 50 to 150 people as well. In fact, it could have been even worse because, um, evolutionarily speaking, uh, in the Pleistocene, we couldn't escape our own social community <laughs> easily. So if you had done some, if you committed some sort of right. social transgression that was completely irredeemable, um, your reputation was permanently tarnished and stained and you had to live with these people every day. Um, so at least now, um, you know, I think the internet in many ways has actually m- sort of seen us revisit more of the Pleistocene sort of atmosphere because, you know, uh, before the internet, we could, you could more easily sort of, um, reinvent yourself and travel to communities where nobody do, you know, these horrible things that you might have done earlier. But now it, it'll follow you for the rest of your life if you do something because everything's online. Once it's online, it's there forever. So, um, in many ways, you know, what's, what's happened in terms of recent uh, technology with social media, I think is just sort of a, a reverberation of our evolved psychology, um, and it's amplified. Um, but it's it's interpretable through that through that lens. It's powerful. It po- it's potent, and it works. Um, but whether it works or not is not the same. Th- it works in the sense of changing behavior and um, even encouraging probably altruistic behavior or pro-social behaviors, but um, not without cost to individual lives. Well, yeah, and that's what I, because I think about, I was thinking about shame specific to these types of allegations right now, or at least some of them with the uh, Me Too movement. There was a really fascinating article I read about an, a very prominent abortion doctor, someone who had basically committed himself to women's rights, you know, in Alabama wearing bulletproof vests going into work. Um, and he was actually, I think, quite religious and a Christian and he sort of made like the moral argument for abortion. So basically across the board, like very, a very important asset to uh, people who are pro abortion. Um, and theology theology is so flexible. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, 
And he was, uh, two years after it happened, a woman who I think was in her, with 30 or so at the time accused him of rape. And, um, he was basically across the board removed from his job. Any, you know, any boards he sat on, uh, just totally, um, ousted from, I mean, not only just the abortion community, but basically society at large and no other women came forward. And, and it, in the article that I read in the Atlantic, it sort of showed that this woman may have been uh, a questionable accuser. And he said something really interesting in the article, which was that he would have much preferred to be accused of murder because at least then there would have been some sort of due process uh, to prove whether or not he was guilty. But in this age, uh, given everything that's going on, this woman accused him of rape and he was just categorically denied access to anything. Yeah. Sex, sex is, um, well, again, not the best way to put this, but sex is sticky when it comes to reputations and reputation management, you know, um, and, and, and particularly right now, of course. Yeah, <laughs> that's a perfect way to. <laughs> and yeah, and I was just thinking like, you know, let's say in a smaller group in a tribal setting, you were accused of something, you know, at least then there would be a group of people that could say whether or not you did this thing. But I think when we have such a large, you know, community, society, culture, accusing someone of something and there isn't any due process, especially in sort of like a heightened climate, sensitive climate that we're in right now. Um, I, I was sort of making a, a black and white argument to myself for how like sh shame was a sort of a, not a good strategy at all ever. Uh, and then sort of realized that maybe it was just not uh, very fair or useful in a setting where mm -hmm. everybody doesn't know everybody. Um, so you're being judged by and looked at by strangers, basically. Yeah. And this is, this is also related to, um, not the harp on this sort of evolutionary side of things, but that is one of my research frameworks. Um, this is also related to, um, what is called the third party punishment problem with other social species, like, like, um, monkeys and apes, for instance, if, um, you know, there are definitely rules and regulations and behavioral norms and violators are punished and sometimes punished quite harshly. And that is usually in the form of um, either ostracism or physical aggression, um, some sort of response to one of the group members breaking the rules. But the dynamic stops within the immediate social environment. So you can only you can only evoke that reaction from somebody who, from another in-group member who saw it happen. So if there are, you know, four chimpanzees in, in one space and one of them misbehaved, they could all attack that chimpanzee. They could ostracize that chimpanzee. There could have spillover effects in terms of, um, whether, uh, you know, they're, they're given food the next day, you know, something like that. But it's all gonna, it's all gonna, be uh, the response of those those chimpanzees that saw the event actually happen with human social behaviors it doesn't just stay in that one space because of language and because of gossip it goes to these absent third parties who didn't see the transgression actually happen and the repercussions of somebody misbehaving could take place tomorrow, next year, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, because of these sort of word of mouth, word of mouth gossip related effects of, um, 
uh, our ability to understand again through theory of mind that the person that didn't see it happen isn't aware of that event and deliberately shares that information with them. And again, you need a theory of mind to do that. You have to have a theory that they lack that particular social information. So these are, there's all interconnected parts in my mind. And that's where God comes into the picture because God basically is this kind of safeguard where, um, if you feel like you're being watched and observed by this, um, moralizing presence that judges you and has feelings about you and can punish you, um, then you're less likely to commit a social behavior that's going to get you into, into actual trouble with other human beings um, that is going to have these consequences for your genetic fitness. So it doesn't even matter whether God is real or not. It's that we think God is real and the our perceived presence of God um, stems antisocial behavior and saves our, our um, genetic fitness quotient. Right. But of course, it's like we can say God is whatever we want and believes, you know, things are good in whatever capacity we want them to. I mean, it's fascinating about Trump, for example. I mean, especially the fact that there are all these people. I was listening to some program on the radio recently about how it's possible that so many like fundamentalist Christians uphold and support Trump as some sort of savior for them. Um, and it's just, it's fascinating the sort of hoops that the mind can go through in order to make anything reasonable and justify. Yeah. Never, never underestimate the power of stupidity. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I'm curious what you feel about Trump as well in the sense that he seems to be. He is a brilliant man as the smartest person. <laughs> <laughs> or un- unintentionally brilliant. I mean, I don't think it, I don't think what he's doing is intentional, but as someone that is very familiar with, I think, narcissism and narcissistic personality yeah. disorder, it is really interesting how far you can go both in your own rationale, but also to, um, attract a following. Yeah. It's like you've got to have this perfect, um, sort of algorithm of, 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 complete stupidity and ignorance, but also some degree of social cleverness. And it, together, it's this um, horrible monster that we get in, in somebody like Trump. Like he, you can't be, you can't be too much of an intellectual to appeal to a populist audience. Um, but you also have to be clever enough. I don't know if intelligent is the word, but clever enough to understand sort of what levers to pull and what buttons to push. Um, and if you can, you know, sort of get that perfect state of equilibrium between those two factors, then you're going to get a phenomenon like, like Trump. You got to be just stupid enough and just smart enough, um, to, uh, to really capitalize on collective human psychology. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's fascinating to me. I mean, I think people are attract. I think what he what he presents is basically someone who doesn't give a shit. Yeah, that is sort of ab- above shame, right? Above uh, social expectations or morality, and that that's very appealing to a lot of people. One of the interesting things that I that I learned in working on the book on suicide was that um, it's actually quite rare to find somebody with um, antisocial personality disorder or narcissism experiencing suicidal ideology. Um, and that's largely because they 
you know, they probably um, have either either a sort of attenuated or diminished capacity to experience shame. Um, so they don't. It doesn't bother them as much uh, when when others are criticizing them. Although you, you know, you look at somebody like Trump, and he's definitely got really thin skin, so it's definitely getting to him in some way. Um, but it's hard to imagine him ever being so upset by other people's thoughts about him that he would actually sink to that level of despair and become suicidal. It's almost astonishing that he hasn't. I mean, if you look at, um, right. you know, uh, go to one of his tweets and look at the reactions to his tweets. I mean, it's, it's brutal for your average person. I would destroy them. I mean, right. Exactly. I mean, and it's, I don't know. It, it's a bizarre thing for me too, because I think, I mean, this is a weird circling back around, but, you know, obviously Trump is like wildly, uh, I think insecure and hurt and traumatized. And this is his coping mechanism. Uh, and it's difficult because I think, you know, I see anybody with any sort of, let's say, quote unquote, sexual perversion or Trump. To me, all of these things seem to stem from early childhood experience or just life experience in general. Um, and I feel like our inability or unwillingness to explore those types of things is sort of what gets us into these uh, places where we're just silencing or we're afraid or we just label something as taboo. Um, I don't know, maybe that's because it sort of turns the mirror back on us to examine our own lives and the ways in which we've been shaped and um, do you feel like that's part of it at all? Like, I, I feel like I wonder sometimes people who are so uncomfortable discussing, um, you know, even different types of relationship styles, like whether or not that's partially because they're afraid to recognize that like their own life is constructed <laughs> to some extent, their own beliefs, their own desires, um, are not necessarily like handed to them, but, uh, came from somewhere. Yeah, possibly. I mean, in the context of sexual orientation, for instance, one of the things that I suppose was a more controversial claim that I made is that it's not immediately clear that at least for all cases of homosexuality, that we could just simply say you're born that way. <laughs> you know, there, uh, you know, I didn't come out of my mother's womb, um, attracted to men, you know, that's, um, and, Right. You know, I had a lot of um, developmental experiences, many of which that I'm probably completely unaware of because of infantile amnesia um, that could have, you know, together epigenetically um, influenced my sexual, my adult sexual response. Um, so I think that we we liked these sort of neat, tidy packages of explanations for complex human behavior. But, um, it's mainly, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of times it's mainly for sociopolitical reasons and we're, we're afraid to look a little bit more closely, um, at these questions because of the implications that they have. So for instance, you know, it's perfect, it's, it's acceptable and it's the right thing to say that at least, you know, through the sociopolitical lens that somebody is born that way in terms of being gay or bisexual or whatever, or, um, transgender now i think that's a very um uh, important debate at the moment yeah. but you can't you know people are not willing to say that about you well you know you're you're born a pedophile or you're born a zoophile um 
because all those things, uh, the assumption is that you somehow choose to be attracted to those types of horrific uh, stimuli. Um, so, you know, there are, there are implications, I think, for looking at ourselves um, and what is acceptable or normal now for these outliers um, uh, in a way that makes people really uncomfortable. Yeah, I had a fascinating conversation with a friend of mine who self-identifies as a lesbian. And she, it was the first time I'd ever, I mean, I'd had this thought before because I'm me and have these very taboo unconventional thoughts, but around the same thing. I mean, I've had these conversations with my dad around his own homosexuality. And, um, of course, from it for as long as he can remember, he's been gay, but is he willing to say that it wasn't somehow, uh, an influence on, you know, one thing or multiple things, um, growing up? No, I mean, he, he can't say any of that for sure. Um, and I had this fascinating conversation with, uh, this woman friend of mine. Uh, and I think it took her a really long time to finally identify as gay and finally come out as gay and, you know, bring her girlfriend home to her family. And, um, we were up very late at night and alcohol and drugs were involved, but she became very vulnerable and said that, you know, sort of in tears, like she's very well aware that, um, when she was an infant, her father abandoned her and her mother and to this day has no intention of having a relationship with her, either one of them. Um, and that, of course, uh, to her, it made sense that maybe part of why she's gay is because she has a fear <clears throat> of intimacy or trust with men. Um, I mean, I just had truly never heard anyone say something like that so honestly <laughs> and in such a vulnerably self-reflective way. And you think about like you know, for her, let's say this, this is true for her that ended up in her being gay, you know, for someone else, it could end up be them, you know, so severely traumatized that they become some sort of, you know, child abuser or mass murderer. Um, and we're so unwilling to look at these types of things that I feel like in many ways, that's why, like you said, at the beginning of our conversation, we end up with so much abuse and so many people, doing harm to others. Yeah. And I think that's an excellent point that there could be, um, multiple pathways, multiple developmental pathways to the same ultimate outcome or end, uh, in terms of adult behavior orientation mm -hmm. or whatever the final product is. We can't assume that there's one sort of monolithic track to, um, the same ends. Right. Yeah. I'm curious, is there something now, uh, after you wrote this book about suicide, is there another topic that you're sort of interested in or focusing on? Well, the natural topic is to write about puppies, I think. Um, <laughs> puppies and kittens and rainbows. <laughs> totally. Um, totally. <laughs> I'm working on a, I'm working on a project, um, that, that is actually quite a departure from the previous books that I've written. So I've written, I've written a couple books now and there, and mm. those books are all sort of concept or argument driven or sort of idea books. This is actually, um, a, a, a true story, sort of a narrative case. It's a forensic investigation about an unidentified body, um, from the beginning, uh, which mm -hmm. was the body was found in 1961 to today and it's still unidentified. And, um, the journey that the people involved have taken to try to find out who this person was and the modern sort of DNA technology to, to examine uh, the remains. And um, that's about all, all I can say at the moment. <laughs>
but so it's very so it's very it's very different but i i i'm really sort of like sinking my teeth into these sort of investigative um projects and so that's what i'm working on now well cool um thank you so much again for coming on the show and doing this kind of last minute before we wrap up, could you just let everyone know where they can find you and learn more about you? And then I ask everyone a very obnoxious question, which is if they could recommend one book to the audience um, that was really meaningful for you, uh, what would that be? And it's fine if you say more than one. Mm. Um, well, you can find out more about me at my website, Um In terms of books, I've always... I've always had a really strong liking for um, really arcane uh, French existential literature. <laughs> um, so, uh, Genet, Gide, um, and, and of course, Sartre and Camus and people like that. But I guess out of all of them, um, mm. The Stranger probably had the deepest impact on me. Uh, I read that as a senior in high school and it really had me questioning, um, hmm. everything that I assumed to be, um, true and normal and reevaluating why the world operated the way that it did. And here we are now <laughs> having these conversations. Right. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, thank you again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Hello again, all of you unconventional weirdos. Thank you for listening to that episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Definitely recommend Jesse's books. They are engaging and really fun to read and challenge your mind in really um, beneficial and interesting ways. I am going to play you out today with a song called If Six Was Nine, which is a Jimi Hendrix song, but this is an Axiom Funk cover, which I think is, I like it better. Um, and very much about, uh, coming up with your own opinion and, um, living your own authentic life and not really caring what other people are doing and really making decisions for yourself and not falling into conventional rhetoric or conventional movements that don't sit right with you, but you just accept what everyone's saying because it's easier and you just want to be accepted. Let's not do any of that. I, uh, suspect we are... We are coming up on a time in our country specifically where I think we're about to see a lot of changes and those changes could go in a lot of different directions. And I'm not super down with the changes that the conventional right or left want to see. I have some slightly, no, not slightly, let's be honest. I have some vastly different opinions about the way things should go and the things that I'd like to see. So the only way that's going to happen is if enough people decide that they're worth it and strong enough to try and be louder than the conventional rhetoric um, and really set out and do your own thing and not feel pressured and overwhelmed by what people expect us to do. Um, yeah, I think there was something that Jesse said in the podcast about around, you know, seeing something as abnormal is like a meaningless concept you know there's no such thing as normal and abnormal these are all constructed ideas so go out and construct your own idea and who knows there might be a ton of people waiting for someone like you to do the exact thing that you're supposed to do because they agree and then you can all work together 
and do it too. So thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the show, again, get access to WhatsApp, group chats, book clubs, etc. Go to patreon.com slash Cots or go into your podcast app, uh, subscribe, leave some stars and a review. Love you all. Thank you for being here. I have so many more podcasts that I've already recorded that I cannot wait to bring you. So look forward to those and I will talk to you in about a week or so. Bye. Conservatism flashing down the street, pointing that plastic finger at me. Yeah. They're hoping soon that my camera drop off and die. But I'm gonna wave my freak flag high at me.
Sing on. 